Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Today, we continue our Australia series with Rod Staples, Secretary of Transport for New South Wales, which is the state in Australia where the city of Sydney is located, 8 million people strong, and Rod is Secretary of Transport for that state, which includes roads as well as all types of transportation services. Uh, They recently opened uh, what they're calling the Sydney Super Tunnel. He talks about that today for their metro service. There's also a great new television program down there, all about the building of it, focusing on the employees who were key in getting that done. He talks about the recovery from coronavirus and where we're headed as a transportation industry. Here on Transit Unplugged, we like to continue our international reach of the program as we are heard now in 99 countries around the world. Hope you enjoy this in-depth interview with Rod Staples, Secretary of Transport for New South Wales in Australia. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, where we go around the world and interview the top CEOs in transit systems. They tell you about their past, their careers, their big projects they're working on, and where they're headed for the future. And today, we're excited to be with Rod Staples. Rod is Secretary of Transport for New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Rod, thanks so much for being with us today on the program. Thanks for having me along, Paul. Yeah. We tried to hook this up last year when I was visiting, and so today we have to do it through Zoom from around the world, huh? Yes, it's amazing what we do differently now, isn't it, to what we were doing six, 12 months yeah. ago? Yeah, it is, yep. So, Rod, you're, you're one of the biggest transportation officials in the world, I think, in your position you've got there. You've got a phenomenal transport system that, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to describe. And you've got a brand-new hit TV show, which is great, because I love media stuff, so I can't wait to have you tell me about that. But first off, just if you don't mind, tell me a little about yourself and how you got interested in transportation and that kind of stuff, your career. Let's go back a little bit and, uh, and bring up some memories. Yeah, a bit of a flashback, Paul, sure. So I am a Sydney sider, <laughs> born and bred Sydney sider. I grew up here, so so love living in Sydney and uh, the state of New South Wales. So very privileged to be the role I'm in now. But I grew up just in the part of Sydney around Botany where there's an airport and a port as a young kid, very industrial area, and was a part of a small business. My family had a, a small business, and that was a mechanic, so always around cars and that sort of thing. But I saw a lot of construction going on in the port and the airport area, so it's sort of not surprising to me that uh, I find myself in a career where I'm all about transport and building things, because I think it started out as a, a really young kid standing on the foreshore of the Botany Bay there uh, looking at things. So got a civil engineering degree, I started out doing civil engineering, so I developed a real passion for construction and uh, worked on a couple of career highlights like the Sydney Olympics, which is, I've got to say, I'm feeling really old when I'm talking about Sydney Olympics because that was back in 2000, but uh, really proud to have been part of the construction of some of the, the Olympic sites uh, at, at the time in the lead up to, to that as part of the career. But I did do a switch into more infrastructure and, and transport after the Olympics. It's a bit under 20 years ago, and at that stage, I was working for some uh, engineering companies. The standout for me was uh, Arup, a big global engineering firm. I worked for them for about a decade, and they gave me a lot of experience working on big projects. But I had a real passion to want to get a bit closer to 
the, the client or the government side and a bit more of the decision making and so forth. So I came in to, to be in transport for New South Wales or it's had a few name changes and a few different existences like all with government departments over the last sort of, uh, 12 or 13 years. But got a bit of a start in, a, in an organisation called Railcorp and was pretty fascinated by just the ecosystem of transport and how it, how it all works and connects and the opportunities that lie. And I think importantly for me in the role I'm in now, the sense of contribution you make to people's daily lives. Once I got in there, transit and transport more generally is just such a critical thing. We've got 8 million people living in the state of New South Wales and we help them out every day in what we do. So to, to me, it's a, I love transport because of that and I really grew into that. I'm also a bit of a change merchant, so when I got into government, I got the opportunity to be part of the first fully automated metro delivery here in this country in Sydney. And that wasn't an easy thing because there was lots of reservation about whether or not that's the sort of thing that we should do. But I started out in 2011 with myself and my executive assistant and got given the job of putting together a team to build this metro. And... So for the last, which was from about 2011 to 2017, I, I focused in on putting a team together and getting in and building Metro, which actually the first part of it opened up last year. And it's grown from what was initially an $8 billion Australian, Australian dollar, $8 billion um, project into a program of about $50 billion of a billion new Metro network within Sydney now. So really high tech. Yeah. yeah. Loved being, loved being part of building that team because the sense of global connection for that I got out of that. People would come from around the world to work on it. So you get the perspectives and experience of people who've worked all over the place and worked on different systems and that. So that's uh, been an absolute career highlight. And then the last few years, I've been leading the transport for the state as a whole, which is uh, a pretty cool job, I've got to say. Yeah, that sounds like it. What, what a great career, Rod. And it's... it's um like you, I was able to, I grew up in the state of Maryland and was able to end up heading up our, our statewide transit network. And so you growing up right there, it's it's the thrill of a lifetime, isn't it? To kind of see your career come full circle that way? Yeah, if you asked me to start that this is a job I would be in, I, I didn't have it on my horizon when I was younger. Yeah. I did want to build stuff, I think, but I never sort of thought about it. But once I got closer to it, yeah, it's it's, I wouldn't say I'd set myself target on. In fact, I was so much enjoying building the metros that this sort of came a bit out of left field yeah. as a job. And, and, and I felt really sad actually stepping out of the day-to-day running of metro to take on this job. But I've been blown away by uh, how rewarding this job has been just day in and day out delivering services for people across the state. So tell us about the job um, and tell us about the responsibilities that you oversee there as uh, Secretary of Transport for NSW. So Yep, state of uh, 8 million people, about 5 million of those live within the Greater Sydney area, so a big metropolitan metropolis, but also some really significant regional areas. So itself, that's quite a challenge to, to service very different sort of customer bases and needs. And obviously, amongst all that, a really significant freight task. So we've done some big transformation in the last few years, which means that uh, in my role and the organisation that I lead, we look after all parts of transport. So public transport and transit is a key tenant, but also the road network that sits alongside that. And part of the strategic play there, which I can talk about, is actually seeing, being able to make decisions across transport as a whole is actually really going to serve customers in the community over the long run. So 
yeah, massive, massive regional road network uh, to connect to the different uh, regional areas of the state and really help that economy going in terms of farming and mining and so forth. So we've got a big rail operator in Sydney Trains and a big regional rail operator in New South Wales Trainlink that, that sit under me as well. So really critical sort of transit there and then uh, hundreds of bus contracts. To, to service buses, uh, light rail networks in Sydney and in Newcastle, ferry network in Sydney. We've got we've got it all, and we regulate transport as well. So because we've got the responsibility for the road network, the, the safety around the road network uh, is another key key component of it. And in my role, a big part of it is the strategic policy advice to government, making sure we're joined up with the overall objectives of the state. New South Wales has been a really strong economic performer over the last decade and we want to keep that that going and transport underpins that. So a lot of investment going on uh, to support that. We're adding about between 80 and 100,000 people a year to the population in Sydney and trying to reshape the, the city to uh, accommodate that has been a challenge, a real challenge, but also a massive opportunity for us to put new transit systems in to underpin that. And Metro, which I just talked about, is one part of that. But we're spending in the order of about $15 billion Australian per annum in new capital across the state, about two-thirds of that in Sydney. Yeah, that's a great investment from the political golden rule, right? He who has the gold makes the rules. And so that's a great investment from the government. definitely. So, so yeah, look, there's a, a big challenge in the job in just making sure day in and day out we turn up, we deliver the services, we keep our road networks open, and we deliver for customers. But in the background, the equal job is making sure that we're doing the work for the future. And a lot of that is in capital investment, but also in, in changing the way we work, the way we're organised, looking down the pipeline of what technology is coming through, uh, which obviously, you know, you've got a lot of interest in, Paul, so... And to me, I would see some real excitement in, in that space. And both parts of the job are fun. You know, the day-in, day-out stuff, we've got a, a, one, a group of wonderful people uh, that service the front line and service our customers. And I love the, the energy that they bring to the job. And that gives me a lot of drive and motivation. But equally, when I think about the opportunity to be better, that also motivates me a lot. Is your job a political appointment? Is it like uh, like your how are you appointed and who's your boss? Those kind of things. Yeah. So in in Australia and in New South Wales, there's there's a political level. So Premier of New South Wales, elected official, and then sitting under her is a series of members of government or members of parliament that are aligned to her party. So and there's uh, ministers appointed who are also elected officials. So we've got two ministers in the transport space here. One that looks after the transport as a whole and that's all modes and then we've got someone who's focused on regional New South Wales so the Premier is Gladys Berejiklian uh, my main minister for transport as a whole is uh, Andrew Constance and then we've got someone uh, in Paul Toole is focused on regional New South Wales I sit under that as a, as a bureaucrat essentially so someone that's appointed through a merit selection process and accountable to the politicians to deliver on their agenda but also accountable to the parliament to do things appropriately and, and so forth, and obviously accountable to the laws of the state about keeping people safe and all those sorts of things as well, right? which is a, is a fine balance. I used to tell people that I felt like I spent 40% of my time doing politics when I was supposed to be running a transit system. Do you, do you feel like you have to do a lot of politics, a lot of interacting with the governing authorities, et cetera, budgets, regulations, all that? So... 
I, I see it as a critical part of the job is being able to sort of calibrate and get my organisation to deliver what the government needs to do. And that is constantly interacting with at the political level, but also with my colleagues in health and education and planning to make sure that we're aligned. And, you know, in many respects, I've got to open the doors, make the connections, make sure that my people in transport are not just lost in the transport bubble, but are actually thinking about what impact uh, transport is having more widely. We've actually introduced this, this tenant within the organisation of three cultural aspirations that we have for ourselves. The first one is to really put the customer at the centre of what we do, and we've been doing that probably for about a decade quite assertively across the organisation, but also this sense as a government organisation that we can contribute to a greater good. So to me, yes, there is a lot of interaction in the political level, but it's actually with the mind of contributing to a greater good outcome for the community. So sometimes helping support a regional community that's disadvantaged and and maybe it's not worth it from a financial point of view, but if it's delivering a broader, greater good outcome, then it's worth the effort to do it. And the third aspiration we've got is actually a big focus on our people, Paul. So it's, I really want to put people at the heart. So I've got 25,000, um, a bit over 25,000 employees and then lots of supply chain of operators, private operators delivering services for us. And you know, we've got to care for them and we've got to give them career opportunities because in transport, things are changing so quickly. Yep. So giving them the opportunity to adapt and reskill. There's no sort of permanency here anymore about the role. There's certainly permanency in the organisation, but not in the role anymore. So helping people to proactively adapt to that change is actually a big part of our future. That's awesome. Those, those are great, like a three-legged stool. That's a great vision. Yeah. To yeah. make the agency, uh, I've been doing a lot of talking on future-proofing our agencies now because this coronavirus gave us a gut punch and we need to make sure that we learn from it so that we can adapt more quickly if there's something like that in the future. Last year, as I mentioned, I was down in Australia. Scott Winks, our managing director of Trapeze, and, and uh, Ben, who works with him, kind of hosted me around. I got to visit your rail operations center just before it opened up. Howard Collins took me there on a Saturday and spent a half yeah, what an most impressive, yeah. the world's biggest TV screen. <laughs> yes, yeah, we, they call it the wow board, <laughs> the wow <Okay>. board, <laughs> and, it, and it is impressive, but it's it's a sign of the investment we're making, yeah. and you know the lessons we're learning about how we can leverage the technology to be better for customer, and just seeing the way we, we can respond to incidents now, and plan ahead for you know track access and so forth through that system, because all of the key decision makers are in the room together. And they've all got that they're all working off the same data, which we have never had before. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me some about this big project, which you've got to be very proud of, which is the Sydney Super Tunnel. And tell me about that and about the TV show and how you're making transit cool in, in Australia. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm slightly embarrassed to have that show out there, Paul, because I'm part of it. But, <laughs> but it is also, I'm really proud of it because it's, it's telling some great people stories about what's been done. But Essentially, for those that don't necessarily know Sydney or what we're doing here, we've got a really good suburban rail network, which is steeped in 150 years of history from when we started in the 1850s, starting to rail, lay rail tracks here in, in this city. And that suburban network has evolved, adapted, and served Sydney really well. It's a fairly spread out city. But there was a recognition about 10, 15 years ago that <clears throat> it's a what we call a double-deck system. It's got some constraints around the way it operates from a capacity and reliability point of view. And 
we had a bit of a fork in the road moment about whether we would keep investing in that network or whether we would build a complementary fully automated metro network with higher capacity and to help service the sort of increasingly dense areas of Sydney. And government made the strategic decision to go down that path. And I had the, I've had the privilege of leading that team for about seven years from 2011 till I stepped into this current role. And so it goes, you know, it started out as one line in northwestern Sydney uh, with a view that we would extend that through the Sydney CBD out to the southwest of Sydney. It's turned into a second line that goes east-west and it's turned into a third line to service a new airport that's been built in western Sydney. So we're now starting to put a network that fills in some of the gaps where we don't have the, the services on the Sydney Trains network. And it's also providing a lot of capacity relief for networks. So bringing that frequency, forget about timetables anymore, Paul, with a, a metro, the interconnectivity that's delivering. And also, so I think the first line, 66 kilometres, 31 stations, lots of opportunity for new development and enhancing communities around those stations. So we've taken a very holistic view uh, with the development of metro. It's a massive civil engineering and you know, railway engineering and technical uh, program, without a doubt. You get into the detail of it, and that's what's fascinating about the, the, the TV series is that we go in and we pull out half a dozen people in that, and we get them to tell their story about what they're doing. And it might be the, the guy that's driving the, the tunnel boring machine, or it might be the woman who's digging a hole right in the middle of the Sydney CBD with high-rise buildings either side and you know, sweating whether or not you're going to get cracked in those buildings to <laughs> someone who's, who's building a train and all the different dimensions around that. And the thing I love about having that TV series is it just gives a glimpse of, to the public about what I got to see every day in terms of the passion, the energy, the expertise of those people. Now, you're only getting a handful of them in that TV series, but behind the scenes, there's more than 40,000 people that have worked on the development of this metro, and there'll be more to come. So, yeah, it's to me, it's good to have that record for history. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, not just that we built this wonderful service, which it is, but that we built careers. We help people build their careers around it as well, and they've got some great stories to tell. Hopefully, it'll capture the passion of young people and people in other career paths and realize, <clears throat> hey, it's not just uh, driving a bus that's part of public transportation. There's dozens and dozens of other disciplines and careers that I can do in public transportation. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that, Paul, because when we first started building Metro in the Northwest, I remember talking with our communications people and we made a decision to, to go to the schools and engage with them about what we were doing because we figured kids were driving around in the northwest of Sydney seeing this construction going on, which would give them a sense of behind the scenes. And in the end, we started doing things like we have open uh, site visits. We'd, we'd bring them to our info centre. We'd go to their schools. We'd do Minecraft competitions where they could build their own railways. It's fascinating. And then we have awesome. got some, we've got some kids now that are absolutely passionate about transport, and about building railways. And that's so my sense is that we've, we've actually created careers out of this without a doubt. That's great. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I, I over this COVID lockdown period, I wrote this book, uh, a book about public transportation for children, a picture book. It's coming out in October just for the same reason. My wife and I have six children. We have grandchildren. And I wanted children to catch a passion for public transport. To be honest with you, I've been concerned that our politicians have kind of denigrated public transportation during this coronavirus shutdown. 
and told people, oh, stay off trans. It's a Petri dish for germs. And there really hasn't been any definite, definitive proof of that any more than anywhere else people gather. So I want to make sure that we turn on the charm again and become the clean alternative by going to zero emission buses and other ways we can remain clean and also capture young people's imagination about where we're going as an industry. And I mean, you're doing it probably more than almost anyone else in the world right now, creating that, um, that kind of excitement. Yeah, I know what you're saying about the perception on public transport, and there's no doubt when we've done the research that there's a level of anxiety in the community about using public transport. But from the very start, when COVID came along, we made some really deliberate decisions about playing the long game. And to your point, actually wanting to maintain a level of confidence in public transport. So not just for during COVID, but to come out the other side with people feeling like, actually, that was really good. And so the sorts of measures we put in here in Sydney, we've, we scanned through UITP, actually, we scanned a lot and they've been very helpful in giving us visibility of what different jurisdictions have done. But the physical distancing measures, the cleaning, the intensity of cleaning, I can't tell you how many times I get anecdotal feedback about how amazingly clean our network is. <laughs> we really raised the bar on that. And, and, and then really empowering people to make the right decisions is our customers have been fantastic. We're only carrying about half the number of people we normally would at the moment, but that's actually still a pretty impressive level of patronage given the reduction in economic activity in the state. I'm really proud of what we've been able to do uh, in that space. So my sense is that we can't always predict the future at this point. Paul, this virus has proven to be very sort of random and volatile, but if we keep tracking the way we're going, I'm really confident that the regard for public transport in New South Wales will come out really good at the end of COVID. How has the coronavirus ridership drops affected your bus contractors? Or do they take the revenue risk and how is that impacting them? No, I feel quite fortunate actually that before I became into this role, some strategic decisions were made about the way we contract public transport services in New South Wales. And in essence, we, we contract for service and we contract for service performance and we pay operators for the delivery of the services and the quality of those services and the state take the revenue risk. And as a result of that, we've actually, in through COVID, we actually increased services. And the reason we did that was because uh, we, we actually realised that our product offer to customers was different now. It's actually about having space and cleanliness. So we went down a path of paying operators to put more services in and so that we could carry the people we needed to carry. And that's, I think we, we foresaw in doing that contracting strategy that it would it be for COVID, but then I have looked at other jurisdictions around the world that have really struggled to respond because they're not set up in terms of the financial construct to be able to deal with it. Now, we've obviously had to spend money to do that, but we all know the amount of fixed cost there is in transit. So it's not easy to shed costs. It's not easy to shed costs. So in many respects, I think we've been able to respond really well without the significant financial pain. And we've had the flexibility because of the contracting strategy. What's the forecast look like for your service as a whole kind of recovering from COVID? As difficult and as sad and sort of traumatic as COVID has been for the community as a whole, I sit through the lens of transport really excited, really excited about the possibilities. I think that the way people want to travel and when they want to travel and how they want to travel has been fundamentally disrupted. And... I'm sure there will be a, a level of reset back towards some morning and afternoon peak, but I don't think it'll ever be the same. I think the flexibility that people realise they now have in their lives 
and the flexibility the employers want to give their people means that we will have much more all-day transport demand uh, and including public transport. So at the moment, uh, and it does vary around the world, Paul, but in Sydney, our, our resources are aligned against this very intense morning peak where we, we run the network to its limits and a very intense afternoon peak. I see opportunity to, to flatten that out and offer a, a more robust all-day service. Now, it's got to be if that's what the customers want, but my sense is that there's a good chance that's what customers will want. So if the customers move in that direction, I'm excited about us being able to offer a, a new service offer that we haven't thought about before. That's great. And, and, and potentially more ridership out of that as a result and less need to use cars. So it's going to take time. I'm not saying it's all going to happen tomorrow, but if you sort of take a two, three, four-year view, you transition the service offer to align with what customers want and we bring some new tech and some new product into that at the same time, which makes it easier for them, then I think we're, we're a really good chance of, of moving things in the right direction. That's great. One of my best buddies in the business is Phil Verster, who runs Metrolinx in Toronto. You may know him. He spent some time there. And that's what he's talked about doing, getting away from the peaks and maybe doing more nights and weekends and letting people use commuter trains for entertainment. Get into town and out. You can go on the town and have a safe ride home and those kind of things. And so, yeah, selling what people are buying, right? Not trying to sell them what they're not buying. (laughs) That's exactly right. Exactly right. And I think that's where the rich opportunity lies for us now is to to reallocate our resources uh, to better see what the customers want going forward. What about new mobility in general? The big topics around the world are uh, mobility as a service, Hyperloop, <clears throat> autonomous vehicles, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, all these great things that were happening just before COVID. What do you think their role is now in helping us get back to or maybe go to a new place? Yeah, interestingly, when when COVID came along, as a leadership group, we, we actually sat down and then we actually engaged with uh, quite a few of our people around, so what does this mean for the way we've been thinking about the future and is it fundamentally changed? I think the type of service we might offer has changed, but the direction we're going hasn't. And maybe to pick up on your point about mobility as a service, Paul, where we've got to is that we think customers' interests are end-to-end journeys. So in the past, we've all thought, we've all had to do all our own thinking about, oh, I want to I go from where I am here in southern Sydney to western Sydney, and I'll go through and work through how to do that, and I'll plan out that trip. My view is that we, we can do a lot of that work for customers and make it a lot easier for them so that I can be sitting here and say, I want to go to Parramatta in western Sydney, bang, put it in, here's your, here's your smallest board of options, Rod Staples. Here's the price point. Here's the journey times. And that can be anything from getting in my own car with a pre-booked parking space where I know exactly where to go through to actually using transit or public transport of some form. And once I make that choice, as I go through that journey, if there's a problem, it'll tell me personally as a customer what I should do. Whereas my experience today is that I plan that trip out myself and I have to make all the steps. I get on the train. If there's a problem, someone comes over and tells me there's a problem, but I don't really know what to do with that problem. So we can actually turn this whole thing into a much more personalised service. Now, I know that's what mobility as a service is as a construct, but there's sort of a commercial engine under that as well. I'm probably less focused on what the future commercial engine is, more about the fact that customers are really going to buy into this when they start to get their heads around it. So in in New South Wales, uh, what are we trying to do to join that up? We're actually making sure that all the different modes 
are sitting alongside each other making decisions about journey rather than about their individual bit. So trains sitting alongside buses, along, alongside ferries and alongside roads. So we're actually now looking at, well, where do we want to invest? Where are the pain points in the journey rather than the pain point in the individual service? So that's one thing that we've done. The second one is data. And I know this is a big thing for you, Paul, but data and opening up data, not just for ourselves, but I think for, for industry more widely, we've actually over the last four or five years learned that putting data into a, into platforms where third-party organisations can then come in and analyse that data and turn that into sort of product offers and apps that can service customers. Really send you down that pathway of being able to get as much information into the customer's hands as possible. So we're on a big trajectory of doing that and getting more more of the data out. So that's a that's a big piece I think of a change in the customer journey. Now, obviously, things like autonomous vehicles and new modes they'll all come into that smaller sport of, of choice. And I'm really excited about the possibilities of those. But to me, I think the big picture change is that end-to-end journey management where you can almost get an app to come in and look at your diary for the week and it'll pretty much work out and tell you, okay, you're going to leave at this time. This is going to be your best travel choice on this day. And you can give some criteria around how much you're prepared to pay or what's important to you as a customer and it'll essentially optimise your mobility for the week. Awesome. Think about it. That's where I see it going. Now, and I can see all of the ingredients are floating around. I think the the cities and the states and the countries that can get there quickly are actually going to be more productive and better economic performance. Almost like uh, what you'd see in a science fiction movie where it all kind of comes together for you and you have personalized. Well, one of the things I've found is that you look at some of those sci-fi movies sometimes and then you realize, hang on, we've got that now. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing how those... It's always amazing how those creative people in those movies actually foresee the future. And it looks ridiculous at the time when it first comes out, but years later you go, yeah, actually they were under something there. Last question for you is, as you look now into the next horizon, as, you're, as we're pulling out hopefully from COVID-19 and hopefully the vaccine and all that will help people feel more comfortable, what gets you most excited about mobility and transportation, let's say in the next five years? What are you excited about? This may sound a bit cute, but I'm just excited about making it incredibly easy for our customers. This is what it's all about. It's ultimately about moving people and freight. I haven't mentioned freight much, but these are really important things for me, but just making it easier. My measure is in sort of the next five years, people look back and go, oh, I wouldn't want to go back to 2020 because that was really hard work in the way I had to travel around. So to me, that should be the imperative. Make it easier and more convenient for people. So whatever decision we're making, is it contributing to that? And I mean, the data piece is probably the thing in the middle of that that gets me most excited, Paul, in terms of uh, an input to that and building a sense of a data ecosystem, not just of customer data, but everything in our organisation that sits behind that. Because I think we often rely, our decision-making relies on some probably unconscious bias and thinking and blind spots. And I think great data analytics, really joining up the various data pools in the organisation and starting to look at that will challenge our thinking and, and will open up new opportunities to do things in a way we haven't thought of and help customers in a way they didn't realise we could. So that's probably the underpinning uh, big changes. We've got a 10-year blueprint and right in the middle of that is data, data analytics joined with technology, leveraging into the hands of customers. Pretty excited about that. That's a great vision. Thanks for sharing it with us today, Rod, on Transit Unplugged. Great to have you as a guest. Thanks for having me along, Paul. Really appreciate it. 
You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.